Hey everybody, welcome into this week's edition of Please Bear With Me, your go-to podcast for all things Baylor football. Last week, I felt like I did a little too much talking, so this week I'm going to do the opposite. I've got two great people here to do most of the talking for me, and I'm so excited. This is a stacked episode. I don't know that we've ever had two guests in the same episode with the prestige and reputation that these two guys have, so we're going to get right into it. What we saw this past Saturday was rough. Uh, If the next two guests don't mention something in particular that I wanted them to talk about, I might hit on some stuff at the end, but we've got Seth Russell and Jordan Lake, both former All-Big 12 players for the Baylor Bears, here with us on this episode. And first up is Seth Russell. Seth, of course, last year was the subject of an exclusive two-part, hour-and-a-half interview that I did on Please Bear With Me, and Seth talked about all sorts of stuff. I mean, frankly, he talked about everything from his career, from how good that 2015 team was, to his injuries, to trying to go pro, all of those things, even some of the Bryles controversy and Jim Grobe coming in, all of that stuff. Seth covered it last season in our interview and was very candid and honest. If you have not heard that two-part conversation with Seth Russell, you can find it as two bonus episodes from season three, which was last year, and I would encourage you to go listen to it. But I asked Seth to come on really for one reason, and that is that there seems to be quite a bit of criticism floating around the Baylor fan base right now aimed at Charlie Brewer. And some of it I think is warranted. Some of it I think is exaggerated after watching the game from this past Saturday. There's definitely something off about the way that Brewer is playing, be it his confidence, his arm strength. Is he just shot? Is he... Is it something in his head, right? And so if you'll remember, last year on the podcast, Seth Russell talked quite a bit about coming back for his senior year and having some injuries that he wasn't even aware of that hampered him a little bit, and just the struggle of coming off the season-ending neck injury that he had right in 2015 where he was told you will never play football again and his recovery from that I just I texted Seth again Seth was not supposed to be on this episode but I just texted him after watching the game against West Virginia and watching Charlie struggle and I said hey man can you just come on for a few minutes and tell us about what it's like to be that quarterback and what you think is going on with Charlie Brewer right now I'm pleased to welcome in Seth Russell, Seth, thank you for your time. Hey, before we jump into uh, the Baylor Bears and kind of what we've been seeing, tell me about this Baylor pregame show, man. Is, was that an, as easy as a phone call and a yes? I mean, how did that all come about? Yeah, so uh, so one of the, the head guys at Baylor who's with IMG Learfield Academy, Matt Izzetti, Um I've been in contact with him just kind of back and forth, you know, with football concerns, you know, outside business concerns, just, you know, just building relationship. And he was like, man, he gave me a call. He goes, Hey Seth, I got, I got a proposition for you. I was like, well, that depends. And so, uh, he, <laughs> he said, I was like, Hey man, yeah, I want you to be a part of the, the cast. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be an internal organization with the Baylor alumni, uh, which I think is pretty cool, uh, to be a part of. And, and uh, all those guys, Derek, Elliot, all those, and Brooke, I mean, they're just amazing people. They have things just rocking and rolling. And, and uh, so they asked me to be the, you know, quote unquote, offensive analyst. I don't know why, but. Uh, oh, shut up. <laughs> but yeah, they're just like, you know, we, we've had guys on the program before, you know, for better, or for worse, whatever it was. And it's like, we think that, you know, you'd have a good insight you know, with Fedora coming in, the spread offense having a good perspective and giving a better you know, a quarterback vision 
view of, you know, to the listeners, to the, to the viewers, whatever it is. I was like, man, I'm, I'm down. Let's do it. You know, let's rock and roll. What do I need to do? They were kind enough to offer me. And you know, I don't know who else they offered. I'm sure they probably offered some better people beforehand that turned it down, but, uh, I'll, but, uh, <laughs> but no, it was a, it's an honor to be a, a part of the team, a part of the group there and, and the Baylor alumni. Yeah, so in case you're unaware, and, and you should be aware by now, Seth Russell, part of the Baylor pregame show. Uh, is that just home games you guys are doing that at the stadium? Yeah, that's right. So Elliot Coffey, the other former player on there, and of course Elliot's been on the podcast before. But Seth, I, I got to tell you, uh, obviously they think highly of your ability to look into football and, and analyze offense, and you are the first person I thought of, man, watching that game Saturday Watching Baylor's offense just with a myriad of issues, can't move the ball on the ground, can't move the ball through the air. Is it the offensive line? Is it the quarterback? Is it whoever? Is it the play caller? And all these frustrations now coming out on Twitter the last few days. So you're the first guy I thought of. Thanks for jumping in. Before I get into specifics, and I do want to get into specifics, I just want to ask you from the overview, what went wrong? (laughs) Well, I, I think you hit that nail on the head. It was just a lot, I think, of moving parts. Give a lot of credit to you know West Virginia's defense. They were – they're stout. They're always pretty stout. And uh, those guys up front, the Steel Brothers, man, they, they lived up to their name. You know, I think just being young on the offensive line probably didn't help at all. Any communication errors, you know, just anything that could have gone wrong went wrong, but not as bad as you, you know, anticipate. I think the – the statistics made the game look a lot better if you're looking at it on paper than what you're actually watching, unfortunately. But I think in total, from my standpoint, it's take what the defense is given to you, right? You know, if they're giving you those five to eight yard stop routes, just take them, you know, throw the hot routes, you know, get the ball out of Charlie's hands. I know the guys that were thinking, you know, they're thinking a lot, trying to figure out how can we, how can we get the ball out of Charlie's hands how can we do this how can we do that how can we move the ball and and going back you know even though we kept going Baylor kept going backwards and backwards and backwards of penalties you know it's I mean I hate to all hate to you know put it on that just in the sense of the officiating was running the game unfortunately <laughs> you would have a 15 20 yard run come back for holding it was very frustrating to see and watch and how, you know, the guys are out there, you know, busting their tail, move, trying to move the ball down the field, and they're only moving backwards because of people who probably never played the game before. And it's just, <laughs> and it's just, it's tough to see and be a part of and know and have that feeling. I feel like the game was taken out of the players, both sides, right? West Virginia had, you know, however many, the same amount of penalties as Baylor had. It's just, it takes the fun out of the game and. But from a sense of coaching, I think they've done a great job, you know, adjusting with what they have. You know, I think they're keeping Charlie in, keeping him safe, not moving too much. You know, maybe last game may have been able to affect him a little bit with his knee or, you know, who knows, right? And but I think for the most part, you know, just overthinking it rather than just, you know, dinking and dunking, moving the ball down, getting the defense to walk up. And there was a lot of, you know, <laughs> on both sides of offense, right? West Virginia's and Baylor's offense were just – kind of sputtering but give credit to the defense on both sides I mean they were they were flying around keeping their team in the game for the most part so I'm gonna acknowledge two things you said I'm gonna push back on one thing you said 
and then we're going to get into the meat of some of this. So uh, let's acknowledge that both defenses were lights out, right? And yeah, I totally agree with you. Those Stills guys, they're real. They're good. So do want to give credit there. Let's acknowledge that the officiating was atrocious, okay? Like, as a podcast host, I can do that with no fear of repercussion, okay? It was not good. It was not good. I will push back on you on this. You called it a young offensive line. And I think that excuse has run its course. Most of these guys playing now have plenty of snaps under their belt. They're juniors and seniors for the most part. How long can you use the excuse of young offensive line? Is it because it's a new system? What what brought you specifically to mention that with the O-line? Yeah, I think you hit around the head with a new system. You know, the guys up front, they're thinking. They're thinking a lot. You know, they have, they've had a short time frame to get the you know right calls in, different blocking schemes, whatever that is, whether that's from the previous coaching staff, you know, whether they're double teaming here, you know, who are, who are they going to double team? You know, which steel brother are they going to double team? Cause they're going to have to double team one of them, which opens up the other guy. And so, you know, just really thinking through that. And a lot of the guys, you know, with, they weren't going as fast, you know, I think was a good thing for both sides, but you no, know, like I said, give credit to West Virginia, their defense was, they were flying around, you know, throwing a lot of kind of different looks, I think up front with shifting and slanting and adjusting and whatever that is. But, you know, I know that the coaching staff is going to go back and be like, you know, we could have done a lot better. You know, we shot ourselves in the foot a lot of times, but like I said, you know, Baylor was making plays on the offensive side. It was just, we were going backwards, right? It would make a big run and come back. And then it's hard to overcome, you know, first and 20, right? You take a five yard, you still got to go 15 and you're going to go do another five and you got to go 10. So now you're back to that, you know, fighting yourself game. But like I said, it, I feel like the stats, you know, spoke for themselves, you know, on the, on the passing side, I think was mm-hmm. great running obviously was pretty tough up front, but, you know, just to give guys the credit to where, you know, where it's deserved. And but the offensive line, I think played well, but not, you know, obviously well enough to, um, to win the game. So Seth, let's get into the meat of why I asked you to come on. And that is most of the people that listen to this podcast are, are pretty active on social media and the common thread of criticism on social media, which doesn't mean anything ultimately, but, but just what people are saying and thinking is dear God, what happened to Charlie Brewer? Right. And you have this guy that has won a lot of games at Baylor has pulled out a lot of comeback wins at Baylor and you talked about the passing game looking pretty good, but truthfully, I think the two interceptions he threw plus the two or three more that probably should have been picked were not very good. He only averaged six yards a pass, and I think it was even less than that the week before against Kansas. And I bring you on from this perspective. I don't want to just attack Charlie because I think he's an outstanding player and he's played so well for Baylor for so long, and he's clearly somebody all the team and the coaching staff respects. But I want to ask you, You mentioned to us last year that you played an entire stretch of football with an injury in your pectoral muscle that you didn't even know about, right? And so when you watch Charlie, I think it's, I think the only thing that's pretty evident and a lot of people are pointing to is there's not a lot of velocity on his, on his throws, even some of the short and intermediate stuff. It feels like he can't put quite a lot of zip on it. And this guy is never a guy that had a ton of arm strength, but was always able to make all the throws. He's the most accurate quarterback in high school football history. We know all this. So as somebody who I think you two have a similar playing style, guys that can move, make throws on the run, improvise, make plays out of the pocket. When you watch Charlie 
this past week and even these past two weeks? Uh, is it mental? Is it physical? Do you have any insight into what you're seeing on tape with the way he's playing football? Yeah, I, I can't speak for him how he's feeling physically. I'm sure five years of banging and banging and the type of athlete and the type of player that he is you know, on the field, I'm sure it's probably taking his toll a little bit, right? You know, there's probably some nicks and bumps and, and bruises and bones that maybe that are moved that probably shouldn't be in the right place or whatever <laughs> it is, you know, but from you know the standpoint of, you know, does he have velocity on the ball? Does he not? I can't, I mean, I, I think it's just more of a brain game, you know, mental mm-hmm. game. He's just thinking a lot, you know, he could be, trying to play the game too hard rather than just playing was it what it is, right? You know, taking what the defense is giving you. You know, I saw a lot of times that game where, you know, West Virginia was playing too high pretty much the whole game. You know, pretty soft, giving a lot of those five to eight yard intermediate passes. So the quick game, you know, whether it's hot routes, whether that's getting just getting the ball out into the playmaker's hands, you know, instead of, you know, dropping back, letting the front defensive front, you know, do whatever they do and get pressure on Charlie, you know, but I'm not down there watching the, you know, the coaching staff has their play calls, you know, Fedora is a phenomenal play caller. Wickline's a phenomenal offensive line coach. And I think it's, it's trying to mesh everything. Well, you know, obviously they're wanting to take the big plays. They're wanting to take the big hits. You know, that's just, that's what the offense is. It's set up to make big plays down the field. Did we take shots? No. But could we? Probably. But, you know, from the intermediate game, I mean, you hit around the head. Charlie's extremely accurate. I just think there was a lot of thinking, a lot of you know, uncertainty, you know, whether the defense was throwing some weird kinks here or there, making a move in the pocket a little bit, closing down, throwing lanes. It's hard for me to tell without having the film of what the quarterback is seeing. You know, a lot of people that are watching the film are watching it from the sideline. And you can't see what the defense is doing. You know, mm-hmm. for me, from my standpoint, if I want to read the defense in film, we're watching from the end zones, watching end zones out. And so we're able to see, you know, is it a loaded box? Is it a, is it a soft box? Is the safety rolling? And it's hard, hard to see that from the side. But, you know, and just getting from a, a quarterback sense of view of seeing, okay, what is he seeing on the field? Is it the same as I'm seeing from the sideline? Probably not. And so, you know, having that, comment of saying you know he's not getting the ball out on time because we can't see what the receiver is doing right because it's just it's, I mean it's, it's kind of a, it's a weird angle and so being able to kind of get the wide view behind that'll be able to tell a lot but going back to Charlie you know, he's a he's a baller man I have a lot of respect for him like he'll put the he'll put his body on the line and he has and he's proven it time and time again and has that affected his play I don't know Maybe he's being I, – I feel like mentally he's being more safe because he knows that he needs to be in the game. He needs to stay in the game. He needs to stay healthy. And if that's taking a one- to two-yard you know, loss or one- to two-yard gain on the run instead of pushing for three to five, hey, that's okay. As long as he stays in the game, move to the next play and get the ball out of his hands to the playmakers, I think is going to be really critical and crucial, obviously, for the remainder of the season – moving forward, but you know, I can't really speak to his health because I don't know. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I wish I did. That'd be kind of, you know, some good insider information, but I don't <laughs> have it, unfortunately. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. There you go. <laughs> well, okay. So explain two things here. It's a two-part question. Number one, 
one of the criticisms of Charlie from Saturday was that he it looked like on a couple plays he just held onto the ball too long. He's just holding on the ball, taking sacks, and and so you're talking about wanting to take those quick short routes and it seemed like was he waiting for a big play to develop what do you think I mean as someone who's been there what's going through your head do you think he has a problem or is he just overthinking it I mean tell me that and then tell me I think not a lot of people know this fedora system very well and uh, so one of the comments I'm seeing is so is fedora system all short routes all intermittent do are we never going to take a shot and you just said you know he he actually wants to set up the big plays so tell me about holding onto the ball and tell me what fedora is trying to do with his offense and where when this offense is fully formed and everybody's just running through it without thinking about it what it's going to look like yeah I think the the first point of him hold on to the ball obviously with it being a tight game right? Super tight, doesn't want to force anything. You know, there's no need to force it. You know, if he's taking a, a sack, obviously is not ideal. But, you know, with getting the ball out of his hand, like I said, I couldn't see what he's seeing. Like, I don't know if there's a linebacker dropping into the flats. You know, if there's whatever the, the games that they're playing up front, if he's having to move or adjust, or if he's seeing flashes, like with me, especially with like a, like a bright color helmet or something, if I see just in my peripherals, if I see that flash, I'm thinking, okay, he just got around and he's coming right at me, so I need to move or move in the pocket. But then it could be times where you see that, but the deep offensive line picks it up, right? And it's just it's a mental game of seeing that while also trying to see the rest of the field. With him, I mean, he's he's sharp. Like, he knows he'll take a hit, he'll make a throw and get up and keep moving. But then again, I think it's just a lot of being on the same page with the receivers. You know, if he's seeing, hey, if there's a, if there's a hot – if there's a blitz coming – you know, the receiver, we need to do some kind of quick route over here, right? Get the ball out of my hands, get it into yours. You know, I don't know. I'm sure they're talking, I'm sure they're probably talking that up all this week. Like, Hey, if we're seeing, if we're seeing these guys come and blitzing, we need to get the ball out. We need to run these hot routes. I didn't see much of that, unfortunately. And then, you know, with the Fedora offense, it's, it takes a little bit of time to understand it. I think, because there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things that can be done, a lot of options, a lot of choices, you know, and being on the same page with the receiver, that's one thing with Fedora's offense is very similar to Bryles in a sense of, you know, <laughs> we never had a for sure route set. Like it wasn't like, hey, you're running a post on this route. It was you're running a post, a vertical or a sit down. And so there's a lot of anticipation, a lot of thinking that goes on and a lot of feel from a quarterback standpoint of saying, hey, OK, I'm play faking coming up. And if I see that safety dropping. Okay, I'm thinking, all right, that's probably a cover four, or cover two look. And so I'm going to look out the receiver I'm looking at to throw. And I'm anticipating him to either you know, do like a vertical, so a whole shot, or maybe a baby dig or something coming in. And if that doesn't happen, it's a sack, unfortunately. Um, or getting out and making a play, you know, getting the ball to the running back, depending on the type of, you know, if they're doing a pro set, if they're doing a release, whatever it is. And I think it's just getting those guys on the same page is going to be huge. You know, this next week they're going to probably do a lot of coaching. You know, luckily they have you know a week to be able to do that and get back in the film room and say, "Hey, we're seeing this live now. Let's fix it so that next week we're good to go, rock and roll, and keep moving the ball down the field." That's really good insight. You know, it's kind of goes in the face of I know you'll be the first to laugh at this. There is a perception that the Bryles' offense was too simple. That, that, oh, it's really not hard on quarterbacks because they don't have to read anything. Uh, you know, and I think you just completely blew the wall off of that argument. 
Um, well, if, if anybody has any questions, pull up the film and I'll tell them all, everything I'm thinking about before this play happens. If we need to adjust, we need to flip, whatever it is. And then well, beforehand, I'll say, what would you do in this situation? Yeah, right. We'll, 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 we'll play apples to apples and, and see which one's rotten or not. Come on. I love that. I love that. We need to, I think that'd be a really fun game show. Hey, you want to be critical of a quarterback come compete against Seth Russell on a, on a play on the whiteboard or on the, on the screen. That'd be hilarious. This isn't Madden anymore. That's right. You got to actually, you can't just push the up button and see where the routes are all going. Right. (laughs) Or, or adjust or whatever it is. That's right. It's a little bit different when you got some 350 pounders running after you. That's right. This is such important context because there's a bunch of armchair quarterbacks out there who definitely don't know what they're talking about for one thing. No offense if you're one of those people. I've been one of those people before. Uh, there's people like, and, and I'll say his name because he was on the show a few weeks ago. There's people like Travis Roeder who does a lot of stuff for ODB that really, really break the game down well from a watching film perspective, but don't have some of that context that you don't just mentioned. Doesn't have an end zone cam, doesn't have uh, maybe complete knowledge of what the checks were or what maybe some of the receivers' options on the route were, right? So it breaks it down really well, but you still have pretty limited information, which is what you're saying. Hey, I'll ask you two more things, and then I'll let you go. One, what would you say, and this is an easy answer, I think, to any Baylor fans who say, oh my gosh, it's so obvious, put Bohannon in there, he's better. What would you say to somebody that, that expresses that frustration? You know, first off, all those quarterbacks there, they have their talents, right? Yes. They have the things that they're strong with, that they're strong at. You know, Bo Hannon's a phenomenal, you know, just a quarter, all-around quarterback. You know, he's healthy. Fortunately, he hasn't had a lot of snaps, so his body is probably pretty, right. pretty, pretty healthy in that sense. But, you know, it, it's kind of funny because I was in that similar situation as well. And the guy in front of me won two Big 12 championships. That's right. So it's kind of like, you know, I get it. The guys behind want to play. And when they get out there, they're going to go, you know, all the way they can, you know, risk their body, risk for the team, right? And get the opportunity to provide for the team. But, you know, whether that's just a mentality of, you know, Bohannon's a phenomenal quarterback, Charlie's a good quarterback. I mean, just everybody's a great in that system, it's just making sure. So, hey, Charlie's won the role. Let's back him 110%. Come on. Let's be there for him. We need to be a, a supporting staff because, you know, you don't know what these players are going through, right? They have a new system. I mean, it's, I mean that's, an, that's an excuse. But I'm just saying it's a new system. They're still learning. All the negativity out there doesn't help. You know, it doesn't help the players. They shouldn't be reading it, but they do, right? Of who should be out there? Who should be? It's like, no, it does, you don't know. You're not in the locker room. You're not in the film room. You know, you're not on the field. You're not breaking down what these players have gone through year after year after year. And instead of having an opinion, just have a support. Support the team, support the players. You know, okay, if Bohannon is the better quarterback, who cares? Like, well, we don't know. It's, it doesn't matter who the better quarterback is. It, you know, every year, time and time again, the other ones out there busting their tail, and it's not our job to judge them for what they're doing or not doing, you know, or the coaching staff. Like, you know, if, if we wanted to be the coach, we'd be there. We'd hmm. be out there, and, you know, whether that's right or wrong or, you know, people blow it up, whatever, I don't care. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the guys out there busting their tail for the university or for their brothers, and, and we just need to give them all the support we can.
Okay, last question. If you could sit with Charlie Brewer right now and just give him like the ultimate advice of how to proceed this season and how to bounce back. And, and obviously, Charlie's very confident. He's very capable. He doesn't need your pep talk. But if, if you could give him uh, just some advice or some encouragement as a guy who's been there and done it, uh, what would you say to him? No, I, I just tell him, man, you're a baller. Like, I have a lot of, a lot of respect for you. Um, but, man, you know, don't make it as hard as, as everybody makes it out to be. Like, don't overthink it. You know where you need to go with the ball. You know what you need to do with it. You read defenses. You went to a high school that was, you know, perfected the quarterback position, read offenses, read defenses. Like, you know this. Like, you've been in the spread style system. Like, this is – nothing to you like this would be your like in your backyard every single day playing football and and go out and and continue to prove you know Bryles always said to me he was like every single day is a proven day you know go out and prove to everybody why you should be out there on the field and you know if that's making the you know the two-yard play or making the 10-yard play or the 20-yard play whatever it is just make the one play at a time don't don't get too far ahead of yourself to where you start thinking too much and just play football, have fun. Don't overthink it because it can get, it can get pretty difficult if you try to break it down in every single little bit of whatever, it doesn't have to be that way. Just have fun. Take what the defense gives you. Trust the guys in front of you, trust the team, trust the players, trust that they're going to catch the ball. They're going to run the ball with all their, you know, everybody that's out there is, is meant to be out there. You know, it's not a one on 11, it's 11 on 11 and, and, and keep it easy. Keep it simple. Keep rocking and rolling, man, and it'll be fine. Want to just thank Seth Russell for coming on the podcast. That was uh, some really great insight there and some really great reminders, man, from just a guy that's been in the position. You know, I did not tell Seth anything that I wanted him to say. I just told him we were going to chat it up about the offense and about Charlie. And so, you know, his honest authentic perspective is hey man if you haven't been back there playing that quarterback position seeing things through a helmet from that spot it's just really hard to interpret what's going on and so it's really easy to lob criticisms I'm guilty of it I've lobbed criticisms at quarterbacks my whole life right we all have but you know I think we need to be a little slower with the criticism I think what Seth said about supporting the guys that are on the field and being really slow to just assume that the next guy up is better um, it's some really good insight and some really good advice we should take to heart from a guy that's been there and a guy that I know we all respect in Seth Russell. I also find it interesting that he seems to think pretty adamantly that Charlie's issues are mental, right? I think that's some good insight to have from his perspective, you know, and like Seth said, that doesn't completely eliminate the possibility that there is something physical going on, right? Maybe that there are, is a shoulder or a pectoral issue. Maybe there is just general wear and tear from all the hits he's taken over the years, right? Seth said, hey, that very well is a possibility and might be the case, but Seth sees it as mental. And thirdly, I think the most important context Seth provided is just how much different this offense really is coming off of what Rule tried to do and just how much more perhaps creativity, flexibility, and thinking might have to go into this offense as opposed to rule. And I think that sounds counterintuitive to some people. There, There is this perception that the Bryles offense, the Fedora, the spread, the Mike Leach, whatever, uh, the, the system, when you run a system like that, you're only reading half the field, 
and you're not making all these checks at the line and it's just sling it around to whoever's open. You know, Mike Leach has that famous quote, you know, how do you get so many good college quarterbacks? He says, I tell them to throw it to the guy who's open, right? But the reality is this system is a completely different way of thinking. And while it is similar to what Charlie ran in high school, it's not the same. And so I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that it's a mental thing and it's a chemistry thing, just like Seth was proposing, that it's the offensive line is overthinking it and they're still learning the system. And remember, you had three guys starting on Saturday who didn't start the Saturday before. It's certainly probably at times on the receivers. Either they, they're not running the routes that Charlie expects them to run. They're just straight up running the wrong routes. They're not creating a lot of separation. I don't think we've talked about that a lot in the past two weeks. None of these receivers thus far are creating a whole lot of separation and doing any favors for Charlie in terms of getting the ball to an open man. And then lastly, maybe it is a physical ailment with Charlie. Maybe it's not. But he's certainly overthinking a few plays when he holds onto the ball that long. And I think Seth said it, man. You just got to get out and play your game. I think as Charlie grows this season into this offense, we will see that. We'll see him maybe light up again and play well. And, you know, there's a lot of people we could have on to talk about Charlie Brewer. I don't know that anybody's more qualified. Sincerely, I don't know that anybody in America is more qualified to talk about Charlie Brewer right now than Seth Russell, just from an analytical standpoint of – Charlie plays the game just like Seth played it. Charlie is playing in a system now under Fedora that is very, very similar to what Bryles had Seth doing. And if you have played the quarterback position at that level, at the Power 5 level, you have a perspective that is invaluable. You have a perspective that none of us fans have. All the credit to Seth. Thanks so much for coming on, man, and putting some of that into context for us. That was really good stuff. Want to introduce now Jordan Lake. Jordan Lake was my favorite Baylor football player when I was in middle school. I played under Guy Morris and Art Bryles. He played for some Baylor teams that really struggled, but the guy carved out the outstanding career. He is ninth all-time at Baylor in tackles. He had nine forced fumbles and six interceptions in his career. The guy just wrecked havoc in the box. He wrecked havoc in the passing game, and a huge part of why I thought of Jordan and why I think Jordan is good to come on this week is because Jordan made his living off of being a hard-hitting safety. He was very much bred in that Roy Williams mold where he was going to come at you like a missile and just deplete you every play if he could. And that being said, I think Jordan in some ways would have to adapt his game to the current rules, and that includes targeting. And I'm not here to rip on the targeting rule. In fact, when Jordan and I talk, I'll mention to him that I'm not here to rip on the targeting rule. I think protecting players, especially the more we learn about head injuries, is important. But at the same time, there's some real inconsistencies in the way it's officiated. I talked about that a little bit last week. So Jordan's going to come on here. He's going to tell you about his career, which I think is just really interesting in and of itself. He is going to tell you what he's seen from this Baylor football team through two games this season. And we're going to talk about a little bit of everything when it comes to defense, the targeting penalty, how you play as a safety, what he sees out of Matt Rule and Dave Aranda as coaches and as defensive coaches and so much more. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to get to sit down in person with one of my very favorite Baylor football players of all time, somebody I cheered for loudly, a football player that I was absolutely obsessed with when I was 13. Here's my conversation with 
all Big 12 safety, former Baylor Bear, and Baylor B Association Baylor legend, Jordan Lake. I'm sitting here uh, at EQ in the Heights. want to thank them for the patio and the coffee. I'm with Jordan Lake, former All-Big 12 safety, one of the hardest hitters I've ever seen at Baylor for sure. Jordan, don't get a big head, but uh, loved watching you play, man, when I was in middle school and high school. And I know we're going to talk current Baylor football and all this, but let's get into your career a little bit since this is your first time on. I'll just leave it pretty open-ended, man. Talk about your time at Baylor, how you got to Baylor, those, those four or five years at Baylor, and, uh, and where you've been since. Yeah, I'll start lead into it. Uh, so my, my dad was actually uh, a Baylor Bear. He uh, played a season of, of basketball there before hanging up just to, just to hit the books. But so I knew about Baylor and you know grew up going to homecoming, going to games, things like that. But from a football perspective, they weren't really on my radar because I wasn't on their radar. And it was just kind of happenstance that towards the end of my senior year, there were three defensive backs that had kind of either gotten ruled academically ineligible or gotten in trouble and gotten kicked out. And they were all of a sudden short on guys. And so that's when... Uh, uh, Coach Bill Bradley was there, and he came in and saw me, and I uh, got an offer from them fairly soon after that. And at, at that point, it was kind of late in the season, late in the recruiting process. I was already kind of getting ready to. I was thinking I was going to go to Tulsa and okay. play there, um, and went on an official visit to Baylor. And you know, basically, mm-hmm. as soon as I, as you cross the Brazos, and I hadn't been there in probably ten years or so. And, you know, I just remember the, you know old school, just Floyd Casey, those games, you know, homecoming stuff like that. Hadn't been there since they, you know, built the, you know, Baylor Science Building, all the kind of, you know, first around campus. So I got there and all of a sudden it was like, across the river, you know, across the Brazos, all of a sudden started hitting campus. I'm like, okay, this is, this is a pretty nice place. I, I'm, I'm excited. And you know, it's funny because when you say old school, that's what everybody thinks about now in the era yeah. when you played. Right. Yeah, because exactly. Now yeah. they'd say, oh, you didn't even get McLean. I'm showing my age. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, just, you know, go show up on campus and, uh, you know, just it just felt right, and so I had a, had a good visit and uh, committed soon after. Actually, <laughs> good story. Good story is um, so you know my dad's dream was for me to go to, you know play football at Baylor and be a Baylor Bear, just like he went there. And so through the whole recruiting process, and I knew even on that weekend that I was going to commit. But one you know one thing that uh, my high school coach had told me, which I thought was good advice, was like, hey, they're going to try and whine you and dine you, and you know get you to commit on the spot. Like the one thing I'll say, I'm not going to tell you one way or the other what you should do, but you know how about just take a step back, you know. Go back home, think about it for 24 hours. That's all, that's all you need, just so you in a clear environment, a neutral environment. And I was like, you know, that's pretty good advice. And so Sunday morning after you know the weekend, Guy Morris was the head coach then, and so I go in, and it's it's me, my mom, and my dad sitting there uh, in the Hilton, you know, Waco Hilton across from Guy Morris, and he's like, you know, Jordan, you know, we're excited to have you here. Are you ready to commit? And I hadn't told my parents about this, and I was just, <laughs> I was just like, I was like, I was, you know, coach, I really appreciate it. I was like. You know, I had a great time this weekend. I, you know, I just want to go home and, you know, just want to go home and think about it a little more. And my dad, my dad to this day would laugh about how he almost had a heart attack on the spot there. Either either A, had almost had a heart attack, or B, almost reached across my mother and strangled me on the spot for, you know, turning down that offer that he thought was maybe just going to, you know, vanish or something like that. But uh, I called him 24 hours later, and that Monday night I committed. But it was, uh, it was an interesting start to my Baylor career. Isn't it funny? You had to go to the Hilton to get the nice yeah, yeah. space exactly. for him to have that conversation. Right. Now they just do it in the office. All right, so you get to Baylor, uh, red shirt for a year. Yep. Uh, tell us about, I mean, because you pretty quickly after that, if I remember correctly, got it some decent playing time and became a playmaker pretty early. Yeah, so, um, you know, had a good, you know, just the transition from, as, as you know, red shirting, had a good, had a good redshirt season where he was able to kind of get you know acclimated to the speed of the game. Uh, that, you know that's a big difference going from high school to really any level leveling up is just the speed of the game. And so getting a chance to play on scout team that year and kind of being prepared for it made it a lot easier to step in that next year and really kind of contribute right at the bat. And so I, my freshman year I started 
on all four special teams. And then I was kind of rotating in at safety. And I was actually, you know, almost, you know, every other series at that point with Dwayne Crawford. Uh, and then uh, I guess we were playing Kansas State. That was our first big 12 game of the year. Uh, Josh Freeman, who was their highly touted quarterback, and my first career interception um, in the end zone, went up, went up, high point of the ball, caught it, and got hit by the receiver, came down, landed on my left shoulder, broke my collarbone. Uh. As, as soon as I hit, I, I knew something was wrong. That's taking the sideline, you know, fifth game of the year, can't redshirt at that point, season's over, and so I just had to sit and watch from the sideline. So, like, just as I kind of felt that momentum going, all of a sudden, you know, legs cut out from underneath me and, you know, spend the rest of the season watching from the sideline. So, that was tough. Um, but, you know, just knowing that at least having that kind of foundation, those first five games, knowing I can play there, one, on special teams, and two, even on the defensive level, really contribute and, you know, be a, be a force. Um, gave me a lot of confidence going back into the spring. And at that point in the spring, um, when we, you know, we were kind of coming back through, through spring practice, Dwayne Crawford, who had been the free safety, they had moved him over to Rover, and I had stepped in the free safety spot. And so that was, you know, nice to see that we were kind of moving around and really kind of carved out that spot for me to kind of play that high point safety in the defense we had. Yeah, so you did enough to impress them year one, and then I think, you know, that sophomore through senior season, you were the guy. So just take us through it, man. I'm not I'm not trying to interrupt <laughs> you too much. I just want to let you talk. This is what people live for. So no, it was. Uh, 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 tell us about your career, man, because you did a lot. It was fun. Uh, so, you know, I guess the defense when I first started there was uh, we ran the four two five defense, and Bill Bradley was there, and I, you know, really loved – you know, playing for Bill Bradley is obviously a legendary coach and, you know, just takes a legend of football in general, you know, stayed back all at a Palestine high school. Um, but, you know, just, and so playing for him in that defense was perfect for me personally, because, you know, I was the, the alley player. And so anytime, you know, that sophomore season, I had 120 tackles. Um, and so I was always the unblocked guy, being able to run the alley and come downhill and hit people. And to me, that's, that's perfect. And, you know, I, I'm not sure how much of a place I have in, you know, current football as far as like a, we'll you know, a, a player like me, yeah, but, uh, we'll but, you know, at that point in time, with uh, the defense we ran, it was great. You know, the unblocked guy playing the alley, and uh, you know, even I had a couple of interceptions since the pass breakup, so I wasn't, you know, <laughs> wasn't a total liability in, in coverage. But, uh, but no, it was, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. Had a great sophomore year. Obviously, didn't the wins didn't come like we wanted to. And I like to say, kind of as my class of recruits, especially on the defense side of the ball, I thought we had a really good core group of guys on defense that really kind of started playing early. Uh, you know, Joe, Joe P came in there and played really well his freshman season. Um, we had, you know, my sophomore year, I came in, I started, Jer- Jeremy Williams was starting to, you know, phase in and kind of playing quite a bit. Um, Jason Lamb got a lot of playing time, freshman and sophomore year. So we had a lot of, a lot of kind of strong defensive players in that class. And I thought we really kind of matured as a group, you know, going through, you know, as, as we kind of grew up together and really, you know, kind of almost rare, we, a lot of guys from that class lasted all the way through. We had a lot of guys that didn't make, make it all the way through. And so that senior, that senior, my senior season, I guess it's the 09 season, was the year that the offense was up and coming with Robert and, and Kendall and all that stuff with Browse's second year. And we were supposed to like really turn over and the defense was going to kind of you know, at least hold us in games and the offense would really kind of start stepping up. And uh, it was unfortunate that Robert got hurt that year. Uh, but I thought at least defensively, we, you know, we had a good unit that year that you know, was able to kind of finish my career in a pretty good spot. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned one thing I wanted to ask you. Talk about playing behind a guy like Joe Pavella. I've got on on this list of things I wanted to talk about. You know, in 2016, you were inducted as one of the Baylor Bee Association, Baylor legends of the game, right? They get honor you at the game in the stadium, let everybody cheer for you. Joe Pavella was inducted the very next game, yeah. right? I mean, you two were just so dynamic in the middle of that defense. But I want to hear a little more about that. Yeah, man, I love Joe P. He was he was so much fun to play with. Coming in from you know first day first day getting known, we were on we lived in Martin together because that's back in the day that's when the football players lived at Martin. So we were in Martin in the same hall, a few you know a few rooms down. We lived together the next year and you know stayed close friends kind of throughout. Joe P's you know playing with him was a lot of fun. That guy just has an absolute nose for the football and you know, amazing instincts. 
And always people always, you know, I guess one of the knocks on him was that he, you know, wasn't that fast. But like his first step, his first, you know, three steps were so much faster than, you know, so many guys that run four fours, four fives. And he's always beating guys to the ball because one, how well he knows the game, and two, um, just his first steps, not kind of not hesi- not hesitating. You know, he's he's very good about just you know make the right decision and come downhill quick and live with it. It, it made my life so much easier when you know that you know that front line and you get the level right in front of you is going to be in the right spot. Yeah, and I think you know what's so funny, man, is. So I grew up watching all these three and four win Baylor football teams growing up in Waco, right? And and but I even I could oh, rub sense, it in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well I'm getting there. But even I could sense, dude, like I mean, Joe Pavelic, probably by most people's accounts, the second best linebacker ever at Baylor, and that's only because Mike Singletary went to Baylor. Yeah. Um, you're a top ten tackler in Baylor history. One of the best, if not the best, safeties to play at Baylor. And so, even on these teams, when Baylor fans think like, "Oh, those were the dark ages," like yeah. there were some dynamic, good playmakers. Tell me both the good and the bad, man, of being part of teams at Baylor that never quite seemed to reach their ceiling. I remember, for instance, you know, I was a big. I went to China Springs, so yeah. Sean Bell was one of my just heroes growing up. When I was in like first grade, he was my Cougar big brother, right? Oh, so awesome. like. Like, and, and so watching him get hurt in a year that I thought Baylor could go win some games, you already talked about your final season, Griffin getting hurt in a year that maybe Baylor could have taken that next step. What is that like being recognized as one of the best players, not only in the country at the time, but in Baylor's history, and yet uh, losing so many games, man? Like, yeah, yeah. what is that? I just, and I'm not trying to, but like, what is that no, like? It's, 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 it's reality. I mean, it's. Uh, you know, one thing that I guess me and some friends joke about, that, you know, like I said, like, we had a strong core group of defensive guys. We like to joke that, you know, we're, we were the, fa- we got to lay the foundation, didn't get to reap in the rewards. But, you know, it's, it's nice. I will say, you know, you talk to people who actually know better football and kind of followed it through the years. They have that sense of appreciation that there really was, you know, part of that foundation that kind of really helped us, you know, set the stage for the turn and the, you know, the uptake that the Baylor took and is, is still riding, you know, you know, even kind of to this day. Um, so, you know, being a part of that is, is, you know, it's nice. Obviously, wish we would have won more games, but you know, injuries happen, situations happen. Where you know, we I was there for my first three years, and and then uh, we switched from from Guy Morris to to Art Browse. With you know, Browse coming in, you knew things were going to change. You know, I, I could tell from the second Browse walked in, just the energy he brought, um, the scheme that he brought. You knew things were going to turn over and change. It was just only you know, question of when, not if. Um, and everyone thought it's going to be that. You know, my senior year, Robert's second year, uh, Kendall's second year. And, you know, we had some injuries and it doesn't happen. And, you know, Nick came in and played great. Um, and he really set the stage for himself being able to come in and, you know, be a successful player later in his career. But, you know, again, things happen. You wish things would work out better. But, you know, it's, that's part of what I love about football is just, the, you know, the, you know, having to face adversity and overcome it and saying, okay, what's next? You know, we're not going to dwell on what the issue is. We got to figure out how to, you know, fix it and move forward and do the best we can. And I thought we did a great job that senior year. Yeah, and I would, I would completely agree. And, and even winning those games with Nick Florence that year, I think, exceeded a lot of people's expectations. You talked about laying a foundation, and I've noticed that ever since you uh, started at Baylor, Baylor's almost always consistently had that one safety who's pretty fierce in the box and can can hit, right? So uh, we've already talked before we started recording about Mike Hicks, who I went to high school with, yeah. kind of stepping in with that role. Ahmad Dixon obviously blew a lot of people's heads off. Henry yeah. Black. Uh, Chris Miller the last couple yep. of seasons. Now Christian Morgan's already gotten thrown out of one game yep. for a targeting penalty. I want you to explain because 
I just talked to Seth Russell yesterday, okay. um, and and he was talking about so many people want to sit in the chair and tell the quarterback how they're supposed to do it, but they could never do it if they yeah. were on the field, you know, in a helmet trying to make those reads right. from ground level. Right, it's too easy to do from from a press box. And he was quick to say, "Man, don't you're so quick to criticize these college quarterbacks. Like it is so hard. Yeah, like, you have no idea. I want you to explain to people listening what it's like playing the safety position, because I think the safety position might be the most underappreciated position on a defense because you're asked to do so much. You're asked to play up in the box. You're asked to play deep in zone coverage. Uh, you might be asked to man up on somebody in the slot or a tight end. Yep. The, uh, there's so many different things you have to do. So just talk about that position and, and what it's like playing that position. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the most versatile positions on the field and, and certainly more so now as the game becomes more and more spread out. You know, back in the day, you know, you have your different types of safety, like a John Lynch type safety, who was just mainly in the box or tight ends, and that was about it. But you know, now safeties are asked to do so much. Like you said, either it's, it's either playing the box, you can play some sometimes, you know, off the line, blitzing off the edge. You're in deep coverage. You're in one on one. So it's you know, to me at least, that's what I loved about it was a lot of the versatility, and I, I thought I was able to kind of hopefully bring some of that. Maybe not as much of the coverage aspect, but <laughs> enough to get us by. But you know. I, it's amazing to me how much the game has really changed and spread out even just since I finished playing. I and, mean, you know, I finished playing in 2009, so that's, what's that, 12 years now? 11 years? 11 years, 11 yeah, years. Yeah. Um, So in 11 years, just how much the game has changed and opened up and um, what's required of those guys. It's amazing, honestly, to, to be able to have to go from playing in the box, online scrimmage, one, you know, Jamal Adams is a great example. Yeah. You watch Jamal Adams in the NFL, and, you know, he's he's blitzing, I think, I think he's blitzing – upwards of 10 percent 10 of plays this year at the same time he's you know playing you know playing as a box safety playing deep middle playing you know man coverage um so what's your what's asked of you and required of you is um it's a lot but again that's what kind of makes it fun it's not the same thing every every single every single down but at the same time as uh, as you mentioned from his perspective the quarterback you know because you you know it's easy for people to make comments here and there but try and have someone else go out there and and, and do all the things that safeties are asked to do and uh, in addition to that, just a lot of times safeties, quarterback and defense, at least the back four, especially where you have to, because you are doing all these different things, you have to know where everybody's responsibility on, on every on every play, so you can understand run fits, um, so you can understand what you know what coverages are uh, and how to play off that and, and provide leverage to, to your teammates. So it's uh, it's challenging, but again, that's what makes it fun. So I'm I'm leading you into the question here that I've been most excited I think to hear you speak on. You were very good in coverage. I don't want you you keep talking like oh, maybe I was okay. No, you, you were you were a good safety in coverage, but you were known and I think you made your living at Baylor uh, blowing people up, right? And you already yeah. talked about shooting the alley and you would blow receivers up as they crossed the middle of the field. That was your yeah. territory and and it really made Baylor's defense good those years you were playing. Now we've entered this era and and to, for starters, I'm not here to rip on the targeting rule necessarily because I think the more we learn about concussions and CTE and and like dude I don't I don't want to see a player yeah. get his head blown off and, yeah. and be forever changed right so um, but at the same time I sent you the word for word right the way the NCAA uh, rules define targeting and what frustrates me so much is on every uh, little aspect of the rule it says including but not limited to right so there's no, uh, for anybody listening, there's actually no clear definition of what is and what isn't targeting. It's very much a discretionary call. And so Jordan, for you, I wanna know, remind us in from like 2005 to 2009, what those rules were, because I don't even think there was a targeting rule. So what, when you played, did you understand as kind of the limits that you had on hitting people? And then maybe kind of take us into this targeting rule and how it would have affected you as a player, how you would have had to adjust the way you played. 
yep. how you think it challenges some of these. Uh, Christian Morgan, I, I was so mad that he goes in shoulder first, yep. aiming at the numbers, and a quarterback slides at the last second, and it hits his head, and now right. you're out of the game. I mean, so just talk to me about that, man. And you can be as honest as you want to be about it. One thing I'll also add about you mentioned kind of you know picking on the on the on the actual rule, but in the rule it also says too if like if they should always err on the side of throwing the penalty versus you know holding the penalty. And so like not only is it is it kind of vague at the same time like if there's a question throw the flag. Yeah. And so that that right off the bat you're starting like so much in the hole as a defensive player. So targeting just in general, I will say you know preface it with kind of like you're saying. I have no problem with making the game safer. I understand right, it. I'm, right. I'm all for it. I'm supportive of it. There are certain plays that need to be taken out of football, and they, you know, they had a place at some point in the evolution, but they don't have a place anymore, and that's fine. That's that's part of the growth of the game. Yep. All for that. Having said that, you can't take football out of football. As much as you want to try, it is going to be a violent sport. There will be violent collisions, and you can't take away the essence of football for the sake of trying to totally make the game safe because you're not going to do it it's just not going to happen and all you're doing is is your the pendulum is swinging too far to where you're kind of removing the elements of football um that you know that i think a lot of people like and enjoy it's it's a contact sport it's a it's a violent sport it it is what it is you're not going to change that for me growing up i was always a big hitter i loved hitting and you know there were some (laughs) there even during my time at baylor there were times where i used the crown of my helmet and got it right underneath people's chins because that's what i was taught growing up i mean from fourth grade, so I started playing when I was 10 years old. From 10 years old to 21 years old, there was no such thing as targeting. And it was, especially you know, playing safety, I was taught that you own the center of the field. Uh, and so if you're going to come, come across the middle, you're going to have to pay for it. And you're going to have to earn it. And like, that's just how football was. And again, that's, that's fine that that's changing. But it's at least you know in 2009 when they first put in the rule, that was the first year the rule was instituted, I remember being, you know, very kind of cautious and scared and just playing tentative, not playing like, not playing all out. And I remember uh, Coach Dino Babers, who's now Syracuse yeah. head coach, but yeah. he, he came to me and was like, hey, man, just, he's like, if they throw a flag, let them throw a flag. But like, play your game, like you're playing tentative, you're playing scared, just like, just let it go. Uh, and that really helped me to hear that a lot. And just honestly, once, like once you stop thinking about it, and it's it's not as big of a deal, but at the same time, like again, growing up from ten years old to twenty one years old, you have eleven years of playing football a certain way. You can't just all of a sudden flip a switch and be like, "Hey, I I can't I can't do this now." So like all of us growing up, we were taught to you know lead you know see what you hit, put your face mask on what you hit, and naturally when you do that, you're kind of gonna dip your head a little bit, and sometimes the crown of your head's gonna hit people, and it's it, it happens. So you can't expect people's habits and the way they play to change overnight. Um, so I think I, as we kind of grow up and more people are growing up in a, in a situation where, you know, that's been removed and they learn that from a, from a younger age, you'll see less and less than that happen. But at the same time, I, I, what really frustrates, frustrates me is when you see people that try and lead with their shoulder, like you said, I guess in the Kansas game, yeah. trying to lead with your shoulder and then a late slide. And it's really the it's the ball carrier uh, in this situation, the quarterback, sometimes the receiver, but it's the ball carrier who shrinks the target zone or, or moves the target zone, adjusts it to the point where that now – they are bringing their head into contact with the defender. And the onus is always on the defender, and he is always the one at fault, which I think is total BS. Yeah, Uh, It is absolutely (laughs) ridiculous to me that when that happens, a running back back can put his head down and initiate contact with the head, which I've seen actually that flag thrown a few times uh, this year. But like, so a running back or a wide receiver, a ball carrier can lower their head to initiate contact with their head. And you have a, a guy who is going out of their way to try and take their head out 
put their shoulder into a position to make you know make make contact with with the ball carrier. They slide, they tuck, they you know they, they do a natural instinct, which is to kind of contract to help you know handle the blow. And all of a sudden, now that head comes in the target area, and even if it's a grazing shot, uh, what's you know, what does it do? We're supposed to err on the side of caution, flag, fifteen yards. Hey, that guy, he's ejected. And so I, and like not only. Not only can those flags be just you know unbelievably hurtful to the defense and you know change the course of the game, where if you have a third down stop and all of a sudden you know they throw a flag, first down, drive keeps going. Well, you, know, you you can lose one of your best players. Yeah, that's what I was about to get to. Is that on top of that, like the ejection rule? And so like to me, to me, if you're gonna eject someone for for a you know helmet to helmet or for targeting, it better be egregious. I mean, it better be me in 2005 going after someone's you know going after <laughs> someone's chin. Uh, but no, but. Like, you know, in these situations where, like, you can visually tell that he is trying to avoid that target. Hey, it's a fast-paced game. Things happen sometimes, and all of a sudden, you know, if they get hit in the head. I, I'm sorry, but you can tell that wasn't his t- his intent. In situations like that where they still eject the player, I think that is egregious. I think it's uh, I think it penalizes players too much. And, again, the, the onus is always in the defense, and it's very frustrating to watch the game being played that way. Um, yeah, that's, that's my... That's my PG-rated take on it. I was going to say, you texted me that you, I was going to have to bleep out some words, so you, you you took it easy on us on that one. Well, I had asked you to come on and kind of talk about this before, this past Saturday's game, and then this past Saturday you see a defender go out of his way to blow up a Baylor receiver yeah. crossing the field. Yeah. Uh, looked like it was a head-to-head or at least an intentional. I'm, I mean, the defender put his head down, lowered yeah, his shoulder, did. and went right into Taekwon, right? And they don't throw the flag. I mean. Right. With all the with all of the plays that are reviewed, and especially all the, like, the dumb targeting plays that are reviewed, yeah. and dumb plays in general that are reviewed in college football, how they don't review that play, to me, is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, he got the 15-yard penalty on it, um, kept the drive alive, but to not review it and to not eject that guy with all the stuff they do is... I mean that whole that whole game in general was was so poorly refereed. It was it was laughable. Um, <laughs> we, we will definitely acknowledge that. From both yeah. from both sides. I, I went back and rewatched the game last night, and I was just appalled. No doubt, no doubt. So hey, let's before we get into uh, particulars on this game, let's just talk about where Baylor's come since you played five ten win seasons in the past decade. Yeah. So I mean, not only one of the most stable. Uh, programs in the country, but may, arguably the best program in Texas in the past yeah. decade, right? Certainly better than Texas um, <laughs> in the past decade, which has to feel good if you're a Baylor guy. So just tell me about how much you keep up, uh, what it means to you, like you said, to to have been right there on the cusp of that yeah. success and then see Baylor go on to have that success. And not just that success through one coaching staff, but through multiple coaching staffs, now multiple generations of yeah. players, multiple styles of play. Talk a little bit more about that. So first, I, I actually looked this up recently because one of my friends, I guess a bunch of friends who are you know went to UT and went to A and M, you know, big fans, and they're they always argue back and forth about UT and A and M. I'm like, I'm like, guys, y'all, I haven't held a candle to Baylor in the last ten years. And of course, Fact. yeah, of course, there's oh, 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 they're they currently yeah, seven and five. Back. I think they average like just over seven wins a year in the Big Twelve. And it's like they it's like they were winning stacking championships left and right before they left the SEC, and now they're just left the SEC to be the number four team in the West. Congratulations, cool. Um, <laughs> but uh, you're no, preaching now. Yeah, no, it's it's a uh, it's it's fun to see. You know, it's like I said, being part of that that foundation as things turn over, and like you said, it, you know, I knew things would turn with Bryles and, and program turned around. Obviously, it didn't end the way anyone wanted to, but to see the, to see the 
you know, to see the, the Baylor program, you know, Baylor University, and the Baylor football program continue winning um, with you know with Matt Rule, and then now with Coach Aranda, I, I feel pretty strongly that um, he was you know he's the right man for the job, and he's going to do great things there. Um, so to see the continued success, even you know like you said throughout coaching change as a third coach now, um, uh, you know it gives me a lot of hope that that um, Baylor University, the Baylor football program, is here to stay. Yeah, fourth coach Jim Grove took Baylor to a bowl game. Yeah, I mean, sorry, don't don't want to cut him the, out as in well. In the immediate fallout of all that stuff. So, talking particularly about what it's like, especially you as a defensive guy, right? Bryles comes in, gives Baylor, you know, kind of the best offense in the country, but a team that consistently couldn't make stops to win close games. Whether it was because the defense was just on the field all the yeah. freaking time, or because it was actually you know taking a bunch of your athletes and put them on the offensive side of the ball, whatever. There's a lot of reasons why that could be. And then Baylor pulls a 180. And hires Matt Rule, yeah. who is like Joe Paterno style, old school yeah. defense fundamentals first. And not only did he come into the Big Twelve and do something so countercultural by saying we're going to be a defensive uh, football team, but then he gets to a Big Twelve championship in year three, yeah. doing that. Yeah, uh, talk about that and what place like defense still has in the game. That is, like you said, the rules and everything just trend more and more toward offense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. The Browse era was obviously a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, a lot of fun with you know from an offensive perspective, just points left and right. I remember I was you know I was at the um, I was at the Baylor TCU game, that epic game that I think was it a we came from from behind. I forget what the 61 final. 50 yeah, sixty one fifty eight. Yeah, sixty one fifty eight. That was the final that. score. That's the that's the one. Well, I remember us coming back and winning on the, that last second field goal. I forget what the the final score was. Uh, but yeah, so I mean I was you know again there were some some super fun games. I think uh, there's. Yes, there are some defensive struggles there and some issues. Uh, I don't think people understand and realize how tough it is to play defense when your offense is, one, going that fast, and two, because they're going that fast and because they're scoring so many points, how many more opportunities uh, the opposing offense has in a certain game. And so basically they're playing a game and a half within a game. So people want to talk about all these yards, you know, yards per game that they allow. Really, that's not the right way to look at it. It's actually yards yards per play, yards right. per possession, things like that. And so that was before like the era of like analytics came into football a lot. And so a lot of times people just looked at the final score and game averages and they're like, well, this this is, you know, this defense is terrible. And sometimes they're right. But a lot of times it's just like, hey, these guys are playing, you know, a game and a half each week. But, you know, switching to Matt Rule, you know, to me, I was, I was a defensive guy. You see some guy come in tough nose and, and instilling that kind of like that hardworking, hard-hitting culture to Baylor was something I'm not sure I thought I would ever see, you know, coming from, coming from Browse, you know, previously, but it was awesome. I, I loved seeing it. And, you know, those defense were so much fun to watch and you could tell that they loved one, they loved playing together. And two, they just, you know, they flew around and got after it. And, uh, you know, to me, what I love most about football is, you know, the teamwork aspect of it. And, and two, you know, when you really watch good defenses play together, it, you see like how connected they are and how much they fly around. Um, together and they use their leverage together and it's 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 everyone trusting everyone that's the way you play good defense is everyone trusting everyone knowing where your leverage is coming from knowing where, where your help is coming from and you might not make the tackle but you're going to force him to someone else because you know your guy guys gonna be right there to make the tackle um and so it was it was great to see us playing you know great team defense because that's what that's what that's how you play good defense it's not a single player being outstanding you know sure there are other situations but um good team defense is about trusting the guy next to you and you know being in the right spot every single time and so that was great to see with Rule, and you know, even watching watching Divas now with Coach Arena, we you know only two games in, um, they beat up on Kansas pretty good, and you know, Divas looked looked great that game, and even you know even last game, Divas played phenomenal, yeah, uh, against West Virginia. So I have, I have no concerns about you know where you know where we're going, you know, as a, as a team. Um, Divas looked great. I, I love you know 
Arena, having the experience from you know coming from Wisconsin, which always has good defenses, coming to LSU, having success at LSU, and then now bringing that over to Baylor. I have no qualms about where we're going as, as a defensive team. You know, I, I think offensively we'll get there. Uh, I think we had some, we have some troubles in the offensive line that we need to get you know worked through. But um, but defensively, it's 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 fun to see. It's it's a different system, but it's fun to see. And maybe we got, we got some playmakers out there. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's uh, number two, and number eight, Bernard and uh, and Petrie. Yeah. those guys those guys are fun to watch. They fly around. Man, they're having a great season already. Uh, so talk about this, man. From your perspective, what does Dave? to have to do what is that last couple of things that he to take Baylor to that next level and for Baylor I mean at this point the next level is win the Big 12 again yeah. right because we were there we were right there last year yep and go to college football playoff I mean ultimately that's yep. that's everybody's kind of goal yep. uh, in any season obviously Matt Rule put Baylor on a very upward yep. trajectory what does Aranda have to do moving forward to keep that going and get to that final plateau there? I think it's just continuing to build on, on the culture. I mean, he, as far as stepping into college programs, like, yeah, that's a pretty incredible place to step into. Most most time you're stepping into a program that a coach is leaving because he's been fired because they haven't won. And this is the exact opposite where you have, te- you know, have players that have had success. Um, that Well, there's a lot of players that have started, you know, tasting the 111 season, you know, that, that were there to see the growth. And now that they're there, on the cusp of, like you said, pushing through. And so just having a culture that you're stepping into, making it his own and continuing to build upon that uh, and, and continue to recruit the level of you know caliber of guys that are going to get you that next level because there's no doubt about it. You know, as, as much as you can build a program with two and three stars, like, you know, you start getting those those three, four, and five stars all of a sudden, and you saw that towards the end of the Browse era, those types of playmakers can really, really help, you know, put get you to that upper echelon to that next level. And I, I think, you know, from a, from a facilities perspective, Baylor is – you know, in, in a, an incredible spot. From a culture perspective, there was an incredible spot. Stadium perspective, incredible spot. So I think I think all those kind of things are aligning to where, you know, if, if Coach Aranda can, just continues building on the success that was there, makes it his own, and put, and pushes it forward in his own way, I, I think I think that success will come. So let's talk specifically about these last two games, and you touched on it just a little bit. Uh, defense, I think, unsurprising to anybody when you have uh, – the success Baylor had last year and, and a coach like Aranda and a guy like Ron Roberts even coming yep. in to, to do the defensive side of the ball looks great. Let's talk about defense first, and that's that's kind of your area of expertise. What have you seen from this defense? You talked a little bit about the scheme. Uh, maybe help people understand, maybe who just don't have that football insight, the differences between what you've seen Aranda trying to do as opposed to what Rule and Snow did. Yeah, And maybe some of the advantages and disadvantages of that and, and what this defense is actually doing uh, to be successful. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, you know, towards the end of Rule's career, how much really last year they kind of they kind of flipped. And I guess I forget what game it started. Maybe against Iowa State, or maybe they they kind of took it from Iowa State. But they started that with that three down lineman right. look, and then dropping eight people. It was really, almost kind of by necessity. It was yeah, it was really started the fact that they were just kind of you know relying on flooding flooding the coverage area to where and letting your you know defensive line work and get pressure, and that ended up kind of working out you know really well. They you know, almost like a rush three, drop eight, and they usually had one spy, uh, sometimes Taylor Young, like just kind of bringing the quarterback yeah. in case and he got flushed. But um, when you have three NFL defensive linemen yeah, up you, you there, do that. it makes it easy. Yeah. Um, so like, so move, moving from yeah, moving from from that, which we kind of adapt towards the end, um, to now uh, what Aranda's running, which is it's kind of like a 4-3, but it's almost kind of like a 4-2-5 because Petrie's not really a linebacker. He's more of a safety. So it's really like really a 4-2-5, but with kind of those 4-3 cover two type base is really what it is. I mean, you're starting to see – you know, you always see LSU always has, you know, they put out edge rushers every single year. Oh, yeah. And we got two great edges that are kind of 
that I think will really kind of step into that role of guys that can kind of bring pressure off the edge and enforce the pockets where you get to a point where you can really, you know, a lot of times you're only rushing four and you can drop seven and still get the pressure that you need to, you know, force, force quarterback into throws that, you know, he doesn't want to make or, you know, get sacks. Uh, so I, I think from a, from a scheme perspective, I like the way we're moving. I will say you saw it, I guess you kind of saw the rule at the beginning. You definitely saw it with, with Bryles when, I guess, Coach Nora was there, my defense coordinator at the beginning. And I think Aranda at least has enough experience in kind of this area to know what to expect. But I always feel like, you know, the first year in the Big 12, the defense coordinators, want, you know, they come from a different place that run different things. They want to institute their kind of their original base defense or what they're, what they're comfortable and what they're used to running. With Norwood and with Rule, that was cover three. And if you run cover three and you run a soft cover three, you're going to get picked apart in the Big 12 just because people will dink and dunk on you all day long. And so I, I like to see that Aranda is coming in kind of with a different scheme and challenging more. And we saw a little bit of kind of some soft cover three in the game last week. But for the most part, he kind of saw that more in the in the early parts of the game. And they really, after that, kind of started pressing pressing those guys and just into being more involved to where they're kind of challenging throws and challenging receivers at the line of scrimmage, which I think you really need to do in the Big 12. Because if you don't do that and you just let guys play in space, they will dink and dunk and they'll you know pick you apart all day long. Yeah, so I understand what the difference is between like a cover two or a press and a cover three. I think some people do, but a lot of people don't. So just one more, break it down a little bit further for, for right. listeners. No, you're good, you're good. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, but people uh, have all yeah. sorts of gaps in football knowledge. So explain why like a soft cover three or, or even um, just soft coverage in general is so easy to pick apart when you've got athletes on offense like the Big 12 has and and how different schemes uh, put more pressure on the offense. You know, the old saying, keep everything in front of you. You right. want you want them to, you know, four yards at a time, you know, the offense will make a mistake and then, you know, we can capitalize and, you know, we'll, we'll get off the field, yada, yada, yada. But, like, to me, in this new era of football, because people are so well-versed in being able to pass the ball, like – and passing for four yards is so much easier a lot of times than running for four yards. If if some if a team was playing soft cover three, which is you have you know three deep players, and usually that is the corner on each side and then one and, and one high safety, and so it's the kind of linebacker to you know flat safety or hook curl safety. It's his responsibility to at some point get out to the flats, and so you know the, the, you give you're willing to give up that kind of outside throw, which is a four five six yard curl route. And the old, you know, the old school thought is, oh, we'll give it up. That's fine. But like in the Big 12, if you give it up, people will do that, and they will take that and walk right down the field, and they will just throw that, you know, hit you to death on that. And so, like you, to me, you have to be aggressive, and you have to play some sort of aggressive defense where you're challenging receivers' line of scrimmage or challenging within that kind of first four or five yards, where they don't have those free releases, they don't have those easy, easy plays where they can just kind of set up and settle in a hole. And you really have to, you know, again, make make them work for their yards. Um, and that's where I think a lot of people, at least coming into the Big 12, it takes them some time to adjust to that and just understanding, hey, I can't just sit back and, you know, keep everything in front. I really need to challenge players. Uh, and I think that Aranda is kind of coming in, coming in with, with, the, with the knowledge and the experience that, and again, offense has been around enough to where he's seen that in the SEC too, but he's coming in and you can see they're really, they're really you know, playing up and playing more aggressive and challenging receivers and making them work for their yards. And you can saw it how well it worked in the second half as far as, you know, shutting them down defensively. You know, really the only thing that – the only way they moved the ball was, you know, that they, they broke some runs on us up the middle, and that, you know, they had a few plays that they, they broke. But really it, was, it wasn't it wasn't them passing on us. It wasn't, us, right. wasn't them throwing four or five, you know, curl routes to death. It was just – it was up the middle where we had an issue. Absolutely. And Baylor's struggle against West Virginia, obviously, mostly on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah. Um, what did you see? You know, I've already talked again to Seth Russell about this a little bit, but sometimes it's 
you think only offensive players can break down an offense, but you as a defensive player know exactly what you're trying to get offenses to do and what offenses could do to beat you. So what did, yeah. what did you see uh, on the offensive side of the ball where Baylor really struggled? Well, for one, our, our, I think uh, – I'm not sure if, if you – watching the game, Rocky Boyman, who is the sideline reporter, um, he actually did a really good job breaking down the game. I, I, Dan Orlowski, or Dan Orlowski um, has some good insight as well. Ooh, don't say that too loud. There are a lot of people that weren't too happy with him on Twitter. <laughs> I actually thought he was uh, he was pretty spot on a lot of things he was talking about, and some of the, some of his unpleasant to hear as a Baylor fan, yeah. no doubt. Uh, but you know, some of it was some of it was uh, you know pretty real talk, and you know, a lot of times was the issue was you know their defensive line was just killing us. The uh, number fifty six, number fifty five, those two brothers, uh, yeah, the Stills brothers were just I mean they were monsters that game, um, and we struggled. Our, our center struggled pretty hard that game, and really kind of the guard center guard that that kind of area really. I mean, the whole offensive line unit struggled, but really that guard center guard, you know, passing off and be able to handle stills. Uh, I mean, that was a problem for us all game. We couldn't, you couldn't, we couldn't run the ball effectively. Um, all, you know, anytime we tried to drop back and pass, if we weren't moving the pocket, uh, which Orlasi was kind of hitting on big time, was move the pocket, move the pocket, move the pocket. And I, I thought he was right, dude, because anytime he tried to drop back, there was always pressure coming in his face, even on, you know, three man rush, four man rush. And yeah, one thing I will say is that not many teams run a three three five defense, which is what the Mountaineers have run for years and years and years. And so it's it's a it's a defense you don't really see very often. You really only see it against uh, West Virginia, and we always struggle with it. And that's just kind of the way it is, uh, and the way it has been for years and years. So I didn't expect us to put up you know seven or I guess fourteen points and just kind of have, have that poor poor of a performance. But at the same time, like. Playing 11 a.m. in Morgantown is tough, no doubt about it. And then playing that defense that you don't see a lot of, um, that's tough as well. And when you can't, when you when they can only rush three and still get pressure, it's going to be a long day. Where do you see this team going the rest of the season? Obviously, uh, the season's already been weird. Uh, very little off season and, and you know no spring ball type of yep. deal with with COVID and everything going on. Big 12 has already proven that this season is going to be wacky. Oklahoma's lost yeah. two games. Texas just lost to TCU. You know, Texas Tech struggles to put Houston Baptist away a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, even Oklahoma State, who looks like maybe the strongest team in the conference, Tulsa gave them everything they could handle, yeah. right? So um, where do you see Baylor going this season uh, and, and moving forward? And how do you define success? I've asked somebody else this question already, but I think it's a good one. How do you define success in such a weird year and in Aranda's first year if you're Baylor? Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a really good way to put it because I mean I'm sure if you ask like you ask Rule looking back now like was your first season success he'd be like well we didn't win as many games as we would like to you know going one eleven but you know, setting the stage for that turnaround so it's you know it's kind of hard to determine what a success in that first year yeah. but you know for me at least from an outside perspective uh, with Aranda coming in you know I'd love to see us. Is it ten games on schedule? That's, that's well, it was ten, but we haven't got right. non-con it's, it's, it's in. It's nine. It's so it nine. might be nine so if we don't nine. get a non-con. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's probably gonna be nine games. I think this team is is probably just with the way the Big Twelve is, it's gonna be a toss-up, and I think we're gonna probably come out somewhere in the in the six and three range. And, and honestly, again, as as we're prog- with this everything that's going on, the way we're, it's about how you progress and and push this program forward. And I, I, seniors might not want to hear that, but like. As far as like I mentioned earlier, Aranda, you know, taking taking ownership of the team and kind of really kind of creating it, you know, in his image the way it wants to go moving forward. Um, if you can get to a point where you know we're getting we have six wins and we're competing for a Big Twelve a Big Twelve championship or you know second or third place in the Big Twelve and you're moving you know moving the program forward to us to me I, I think that's a that's probably a, a realistic spot where we're gonna where we're gonna end up. Would I like to see us bounce back from this win and, and just you know go on a tear? Absolutely. Um, I, I think as players get more comfortable with um, with the system. 
you'll think you'll see things start clicking better because like you said you know we had no spring practice so this defense is new to players this offense yeah. is new to players yeah. and you know you can diagram it on on the board or on an ipad as much as you want uh, but until you're you know being able to you know use live bullets and, and, and see it in action it's it's a lot different oh totally yeah and seth said that too with some of the criticism from the offense is like you're you're learning a completely yeah. new scheme and you have not had all the time right. that you should have. It's game two in a new it's game two in a new system and you haven't really had a chance to test it like you sh- like you should have. And right. so it's it's uh it's tough. And so to have all all those kind of changes, if you can you know, again push you know push forward and, and have a successful season of you know seven seven and two six and three and yeah. really kind of be there knocking on the door competing for a Big Twelve championship, I, I think that's a, a absolutely a win. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I think even if you win four or five games, but you see that progress, I think that's that's good. If you're yeah. a Baylor fan, you know, sets the stage well for next year. And again, you know, uh, not to belabor this point too much, but not having time to install stuff. Typically, your second game in a new scheme is against a Northwestern state. Yeah. Not against West Virginia or right. any Big Twelve opponent. For right. That matter. Right. So, right. and even our second game this year was supposed to be Kansas. Which, let's be honest about Kansas, that might as well be a non-conference game <laughs> yeah. most of the time. Right. Yeah. Two more questions, Jordan. We've been here a while. I appreciate your time, and Baylor fans are going to enjoy this. But uh, these are kind of softballs. What to you makes Baylor a special place? To me personally, it was it's always been special to me because my dad went there, and because I you know I grew up going to homecomings. I went to games growing up, uh, and so to me, I always had you know that kind of special thing to, you know tinge to it. But for you know from an outsider, the intersection of 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 faith and you know university and such a beautiful place you know, to me is. Again, I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure if we were recording at that point, but just as, you know, on my recruiting visit, you know, we should drive over to Brazos and I all of a sudden see the campus. And I'm like, oh, my God, this place is amazing. Uh, and I knew within, you know, 24 hours that that was going to be a place that I want to go to school. And so, I, you know, for me, you know, especially the way Waco has turned over in uh, since I've been there, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing to me. One what a good football program can do and two what a you know home run hgtv show can do for waco but, but like right. how much has changed since 2005 when i got there to, to now is is incredible and uh you know as if i were if i were a freshman i think of how you know amazed i was you know being like oh this place is great how much more amazed i would be now being like oh my god this place is amazing i, I absolutely want to go here uh and from a football perspective the facilities are are unbelievable that's that stadium the practice facility, the dining hall now, all right there along the river, um, yeah, and just kind of how how well they've you know set that up uh, that sports complex along the river. How is much have you amazing. gotten? To, this is a follow up question. How much have you gotten to go in there and see all that, and hang out around? I don't know how much. I mean, tell me about being a former player. How much do you get access to the athletic department? I mean, I could I could make a few calls and, and go through if I wanted to. Sure. Uh, I, I will say just so I have a, a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old. Yeah, uh, we haven't made as many trips up there recently as we'd like to. Uh, we're hoping to actually get some get in some games this year, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen anymore. But so I've, I haven't been to the new training table. Um, the practice facility was open that first year they were open was my was my senior year, and so I got to at least experience that and, and live there uh, for a year. Uh, but the stadium, I've gone through. I've seen the locker rooms. I've you know, had a chance to. Snuck onto the field after after the hours go. one time through some through some pass routes that felt great, but uh, but no, I mean it's just what they've done to overhaul that from again where I came from in 2005, walking into Floyd Casey and you know <laughs> football stadium slash like radiation bunker in the case in case of Soviet <laughs> attack, uh, you know from where they've you know come that, from that, that might point. be the best way I've heard it described. <laughs> honestly, that's uh, hilarious. Coming from that to where we are now, like it's it's just, the progress is unbelievable. Um, and to me, it's it's really like I said, it's really 
promising for the future of Baylor and Baylor football to, to, yeah. to have that there, to have that kind of advantage in in, uh, in just facilities. Yeah. Um, as you as you move forward and try to recruit a lot of these players. Yeah. Yeah. And for so long, you know, that was that was the advantage that Texas or Texas A and M legitimately yeah. had. Was, yeah. No was, doubt. Was hey, you can go to Baylor, you'll be in Waco, Texas. That's great, but like you won't get this. Right? Yeah. And now Baylor has that, obviously, thanks to uh, players like you who who helped turn that program around. Last thing. Baylor fans who are listening to this podcast, some of them are starting to get to go to the games a little bit. Uh, I got to go to the Kansas game, but a lot of people still stuck at home, stuck in this weird social reality, uh, trying to watch the games on TV, trying to stay optimistic. What what would be your message to Baylor fans, both who are still active and supporting and able to be at the games and those who aren't? And, and yeah, just what would you say to Baylor fans uh, who might be listening and might be hearing from you? I mean, just just because you can't go doesn't mean you can't stay plugged in and supportive i uh you know i, I was pretty excited this this weekend I smoked my first brisket of the season uh yes, so like had, had, had some people over we watched we watched the game and obviously you know obviously frustrating outcome but uh but you know i mean just with the uncertainty of, of one how things are going to progress in this fall with the, a the season even being played but b how many people can actually go to the game uh you know staying involved as much as you can and staying plugged in um and providing support how you can i mean you know the players see that those players are, are, are gonna are gonna fight their tails off no matter what what does it mean as a player and you again you played on some teams uh, that had a lot of talent and you played on some teams that struggled what does it mean to have fan support through it all the good and the bad to me it changes a lot and it depends i think defensive players i mean bias but i think defense players feel off it more so than offensive players just because oh i think that's totally fair. Uh, yeah. but you know whenever we you have big crowds there is just that extra kind of twinge of excitement and you really get that extra juice of energy especially you start getting some big situations on third downs you know playing back into the goal line things like that so you know but i think people understand that this year is going to be so much different it's where it's not going to be the same and one of the things you really see is who loves football who can get up and who can get it going without having 40 50,000 people in the stands and are they still going to bring it at that same level every single week to me that that's exciting because I want, I want to see who's you know what, what players made of but at the same time like it's just this year's a tough year and it's going to be interesting to see like you said how, how things progress whether we get up to 50 percent or 75 or you know or we even finish finish the year so I think yes it matters as a player but I also think people are are aware enough to understand that hey this is this has been a wonky season. It's going to continue to be a wonky season. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can kind of just continue, uh, t- continue as best we can and, and make the most of it. This has been fun. Uh, I appreciate, appreciate you reaching out. Um, been a lot of fun, uh, talking Baylor football, uh, both current and past and, um, getting to shout out some old, old teammates and, uh, and give my views on targeting. Uh, <laughs> said I, I, <laughs> I've got a lot stronger views, and especially Saturday, I had a lot stronger views. But, uh, but no, it's fun to get off the chest a little bit. It's like Heck a good, yeah. vent, good venting session. Heck yeah! Well, we'll have you back anytime, Jordan Lake. Hey, Baylor fans, that's all I've got for you this week. I'm going to go ahead and end the episode there after we got so much content from both. Seth and Jordan want to thank both of them once again for being on this week's podcast. Thank you for listening. Hey, we'll come back next week and I might have a little bit more of my own opinions on West Virginia. Definitely wanted you to hear from those two guys this week. And we will preview, of course, the upcoming matchup against Oklahoma State. It's a big one, big one for Baylor. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Sick and Bears. 
Hey, we're going to get out of here. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's edition of Please Bear With Me. Hope you enjoyed it. The Please Bear With Me theme and transition music is brought to you by Iron Kids. Check out Iron Kids anywhere you stream music. Thanks to Tim Watkins and Baylor247 for making this possible. My name's been Scotty Swingler. This is Please Bear With Me. See you next week. Thank you.